and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. So good to see your smiling faces, or what did he say, the filing spaces? I like that too. So for those visitors that are joining us, we're happy you are here as well. Um, we're glad you've come today. Uh, I, I hope that you brought your Bible, but if you didn't, you can look online uh, and grab uh, John chapter, check this out, 7. So uh, yeah, that's good. So if you're new here, uh, we've been in chapter 6 for a couple of weeks. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're carefully working our way through the gospel of John verse by verse. And um, so we're in John 7, and there was much rejoicing. So let's go ahead and get our Bibles out, get something to write with, take notes in your Bible. Uh, The way I do that is if someone were to find my Bible after I'm gone, they would be able to see the notes I'd taken for sermons on that. So let's begin with remembering how we got here. Think of the flow of historical events that we've studied so far in the book of John. The unbelieving world thinks of history as some kind of seamless random chain of events that, that just occurred. No rhyme or reason for that, but it's all chance and no meaning to them. But what we're going to see as we begin to unpack chapter 7 is that the Bible clearly portrays history as his story. You see what I did there? History is his story, God's story of his working and his plan uh, to rescue his people. In other words, history, particularly here in John, God is working through his eternal purpose, his perfect eternal plan. We call that plan his providence. And more than uh, that, we read the rest of John. We'll see his providence more and more as we go through this. We see it all through scripture, but the detail of timing, of people, of conversations, events, decisions, the good, the bad, the ugly, God is going to use it all, all of it. So especially here in John 7, we're going to see some timing and location. Uh, This is going to be critical to understanding the providence of of God. So before we get to chapter 7 of John, think back with me for just a moment to the big picture moment. Since the book of John started, we see Jesus ministering alongside his disciples. He's preaching. He's performing these miraculous signs. We see him going from the north in Galilee, the north of Israel, to the south area called Judea. And it has the capital city you'll recognize as Jerusalem. It's, it's like back and forth, back and forth, Judea, Galilee, Judea, Galilee. And uh, the Apostle John will describe a scene here and then one there and then back again. And each scene we've studied so far has given us a little bit more insight into the person and work of Jesus. Back in John chapter 5, while in Jerusalem, Jesus had healed the man that had been lame since birth. You remember that? It's going to be key in chapter 7. Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath, provoking the wrath of the Jewish leaders. Now, when they confront Jesus on this healing of this lame man on the Sabbath, Jesus simply begins to teach them about who he is. 
and how wrong they are, which they love. I'm just being facetious. They don't love it. This makes the Jewish leaders incredibly angry. And they began to try to have Jesus killed from that point on. But the crowds love Jesus. The common people, they think he's the bomb. This might be the one they're talking about themselves. So Jesus and his disciples go north to Galilee. They travel around Israel, performing lots of miracles, baptisms, healings, preaching. Jesus spends more than a year doing these miracles, teaching the People in every little Jewish town all over. Now the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe this time in detail. But John just simply skips over that. Remember, he's given us specific scenes to look at. And you'll remember John 6 starts out with the words, after this. And what happened in John 6 then? It started with a major miracle of what John describes as a sign that Jesus performs. The feeding of the 20,000 people with a few loaves and fish. And the people then followed Christ thinking, this has got to be the Messiah. Let's make him king even if he doesn't want to be king. They've got plans for Jesus. But then after Jesus teaches them what it means to follow him... And what being a true believer, true disciple of his really meant, they say, well, this teaching is just too heavy. It's too hard to understand, too hard to accept, easy to understand. The price is too high to follow you, Jesus. So this massive crowd simply, they just turn away from Jesus, right? And at the end of John 6, we see only the 12 disciples left. It seems like a total defeat for Jesus. It's not, but it seems like it. But it appears to be a defeat from the people looking from the outside into Jesus' ministry. We'll see in just a few minutes, that includes his own family, his physical family, his own brothers. We begin in chapter 7, and uh, listen to how it begins. Here it is. After this, notice, same way as chapter 6, Jesus went about Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. John 7 opens with us giving us this setting. Let's make sure we understand the setting. You know me, I like history. It it helps us to understand the setting. When we read after this, that's like John's little code for saying new scene, new scene. Remember, that's how chapter 6 had begun. It's another scene John is going to reveal Jesus. Now, let's talk timing now. Because when we're talking about the providence of God, understanding understanding time and how it applies to to what's happening with his providence uh, is important to get what Jesus is talking about in these verses. We often worry about our timing. Are we early or late? Are we on time? Or what, what are we? And, or or uh, when we are to go somewhere, uh, anybody like me, like you, you go, unless you're 15 minutes early, you're 30 minutes late. You like that? There's a few of us. The rest of you guys are lazy. You get there late. But uh, no, no. I mean, some of you like go get there on time and, and you know, I can't get there on time. I have to get there early. Uh, but what we're going to see, Jesus isn't worried about time at all. Getting there early or late, he's going to rest in his father's timing. Now, when it says after this in verse one, it's not talking about the next day. 
It's been six months since chapter six ended. How do we know that? Well, it's just in the text. We know it because in chapter six, uh, the Passover feast is about to occur. That's in the springtime. And as chapter seven uh, begins, verse two says the feast of booths uh, was about to begin. And that occurs in September, last week, September, early October. That's how we know six months have elapsed. By the way, back in chapter 6, Jesus had spent two days with this massive crowd. And then after the crowds left, Jesus spent six months very intentionally teaching, discipling his own disciples. This is an important thing to understand about who Jesus is, the purpose and how he spent his time, how he spent his energy. And it gives us clues to understand how we should also spend our energy as well. Why spend so much time with his disciples teaching them? I mean, six months, especially when he had 20,000 and he only spent two days, really a day and a half. Jesus had driven them away with his teaching. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what they were about to face. He began telling them for the very first time of the rejection that he would receive at the hands of the Jewish leaders of his crucifixion, of his suffering, his death, his resurrection from the dead. And his death and resurrection would come in only six more months. From this point, Jesus was getting them ready for the storm that they were about to face. And only a few weeks after Jesus' death, you would see Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the beginning of the the new church age. I, I, I mean, we're talking about seven months now before the disciples would be standing preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit before the leaders of Israel and thousands of people would be added to the church on day one. So as John 7 opens, we understand that Jesus doesn't have much time left to get these disciples ready. During these six months staying in Galilee, Jesus even took the inner circle of Peter James and John gave them a glimpse into the divine uh, setting on a mountaintop. We call that Jesus' transfiguration. It's described in Matthew 17. We'll preach on that sometime. Uh, uh, Different, but Jesus' face becomes like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And Jesus is suddenly standing, talking with Moses and Elijah there. And a cloud envelops them and the disciples. And God the Father's voice is heard. and, And... You hear God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now this all happened in that six months. Jesus is preparing his disciples for some serious ministry that they will carry out for the rest of their lives. Growing his followers up so that they can serve the church body. And this was critical to Jesus. We call this process discipleship. Now here's my point. Discipleship is a high priority here at Bentry Church because it was to Jesus. When Jesus gave the great commission in Matthew 28, 19, it wasn't to go and to attract a large crowd, but rather it was go and make what? Disciples. There's a big difference between those goals. I find it very interesting that Jesus let 20,000 people leave and doesn't try to stop them and pours into these 
12 disciples, 11 of which would change the world with their witness. Now, please hear me. We're not against having a lot of people come to know Jesus at Bentry Church. I would love that. There's nothing wrong with a, a large group of people coming to church unless, unless that's your goal to get a lot of money uh, or, or prestige. If that's your goal to build your earthly kingdom, I think that's wrong. Our job is to build disciples because that is what Jesus' goal was. And by the way, that changed the world. Those disciples turned the world upside down with the power of the Holy Spirit working through them, right? That's what Jesus was doing in those six months. And let me say, the real measure of a church's success in being the church Jesus called it to be is not the size of its congregation. Rather, write this down, true success in a church is the depth and completeness of the discipleship of its members. True success in a church is in the depth and completeness of the discipleship of its members. Brothers and sisters, for pastors, that sends cold chills down our spine because we are responsible for the members of this church. We account for you. So Jesus pours into these guys for six months, getting them ready, but then he's now getting ready to leave Galilee. This is the last time Jesus will be in Galilee until after his resurrection from the dead. Pretty significant. So Jesus is wrapping stuff up in Galilee. This is his hometown area. And we know everybody's headed down to the feast. And I mean everybody. It leaves ghost towns. Just a few people. We read in verse 3. John 7, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers are his half-brothers that are younger. Since Jesus' father is not Joseph, but rather God the Father and his um, mother is the Virgin Mary when she conceives Jesus. Along with Jesus, Mary gave birth to, check this out, to seven children that we know of. The names of Jesus' half-brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. And we know that Jude and James wrote two of the books that hold their names in the New Testament. They were the leader, they were also leaders in that early church, but later on, much after this conversation. Church history tells us that Jesus' family all becomes believers, uh, and that right there strengthens my faith. Uh, when your brothers and sisters then believe and say, you are the son of God, that's big, because these are the people that saw you behind the scenes. But their belief in Jesus as the Savior of the world would come after they see Jesus resurrected from the dead. When this conversation that we're studying occurs between Jesus and his brothers, they're not yet believers. They would become believers after Jesus' resurrection, but they don't believe he is the Son of God, at least at this point. Now, why did Jesus' brothers want him to go to the Feast of Booths or what we also know as the Feast of Tabernacles. Same feast. 
Well, for a number of reasons, but let's just make sure we understand what these brothers would have understood. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of three big feasts each year that all adult Jewish males are supposed to attend. So they bring their wives, their children. Jerusalem would swell from about 140,000 regularly in size to well over a million. According to the first century historian Josephus, he described this feast as one of, as the most popular of the three at that time. As Jesus' brothers begin to advise him, you can kind of hear their mocking tone towards Jesus, can't you? His brothers had known about the thousands of followers that had simply just walked away from Jesus just six months before. Maybe they're kind of rubbing it in like brothers and sisters do sometimes. Maybe in their mind, Jesus had missed his best chance to really make things work. And they also probably knew that Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were trying to have Jesus killed. And Jesus' brothers, uh, are they wanting Jesus dead? No, 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 not really. But think about what they're saying. Look at verse 3 again. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you are doing. Now, what they're basically saying is Galilee and the north, this is rural. This is no place for you to raise up followers. Go to where the people are. Go to the city, the big city. Go during the feast. His brothers are thinking just like the false disciples and the big crowd that had stopped following Jesus just six months before. His brothers are saying, do some miracles in the big city for the big crowd so that people will finally believe you. They've got big plans for Jesus just like the the big crowd had six months before this. They're thinking the same way. In, In a real sense, his brothers are saying, Jesus, you need a power base of people. You're going to need money. You're going to need weapons. You're going to need people of influence to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And you're never going to get that kind of power here in Galilee. But that was not true, was it? They continue in verse 4 and 5. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers think they know what Jesus is planning. They think they know his end goal, but obviously they don't. They have plans for Jesus, but their plans clearly don't match Jesus' plans. In a way, the brothers are saying, look, if you can get the people and and the Jewish leaders to follow you, then maybe then we'll think about following you. But since... That will never happen. Good luck. That's, that's brothers right there. Pretty harsh, I think. Pretty harsh. Now, I, I want to remind us of something we learned over the last few weeks together back in chapter 6. Now, his brothers are saying pretty much the same thing the crowd had been saying, wanting to get Jesus to do more miracles to somehow, if he could do enough miracles, they would prove he was the Messiah. The problem is that the miracles themselves are not the things that brought life to the 11 disciples that believed, are they? What was it that brought life to them? Well, God giving Jesus to them. We saw in John chapter 6, 
or giving them to Jesus, what was the clearly the catalyst? I go back to John chapter 6, verse 68, 69. No groans, please. All right. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the, say it with me, words of eternal life. Words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They had been brought to life by God, and then they came to know Jesus as Lord. How? By his words. Jesus' brothers are not there yet. They've not been given faith at this point, saving faith. So they, then listen to how Jesus responds to them. Back to John 7. Uh, looks, look at verse 6 here. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast for my time is not yet fully come. Now we're getting to some gold here. So let's dig deep on this stuff. Make sure we understand. We need to go slow for just a moment to take this apart. When Jesus says in verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What does that mean? Well, what is Jesus' time? He's referring to his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, the end. That's the time he's referring to. Now, we know that that will be in another six months. We read ahead, haven't we? And that's going to take place at the next great feast, the Passover feast. However, the brothers and the disciples, they're clueless on that. They don't know that. They are still... Uh, they all still think Jesus' goal is to be an earthly king, uh, be a traditional king, throw those Romans out, and then even rule the world. But what does Jesus say about his purpose in coming to the earth and taking on the flesh of man? The plan of Jesus to come to the earth as a baby born of the virgin is not some kind of afterthought. Like, like since man sinned in the garden and then the whole... Uh, Israel being God's people, since none of that seemed to work out okay, then God decided, well, I guess I'll send my son. No, 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 no. That's not right. That's not how it goes. Jesus coming to earth was always the plan. And get this, the timing is critical because it's God's providence. This is God's plan. Jesus is going to follow God's plan. Now we read Jesus' words when he says this, In Luke 19, verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's his plan, to seek and save the lost. Jesus clearly has a different plan than his brothers do. We'll come back to this later in another sermon, but here's the thing we we just want to touch on right now. Write this down. God's plan for the redemption of his people follows his specific plan and time that was set in place from eternity past. God's plan for the redemption of his people follows his specific plan and time that was set in place from eternity past. This will make smoke come out of your ears, won't it? That there is a specific time that everything will take place. 
We call that God's providence. That God in his control is working his plan. Jesus is sticking to God the Father's plan, his providence. The Apostle Paul teaches this exact same thing in Galatians 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, I love this, the fullness of time had come, God sent for his, uh, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 5 is saying, we who are guilty of breaking the laws of God, we call that sin. Jesus comes He is subject to the law. He gives his life. He never sins. In other words, he demonstrates his righteousness. And that's important because when he offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins, it's his sinlessness that enables him to be the perfect sacrifice. He is the lamb slain to take away the sins of the people, his people, those that believe. But if you think about this verse, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about the fullness of time had come, what does he say? That God had a specific time frame and a list of events that he had planned out from before creation that needs to take place before crucifixion and death and resurrection. Another way to translate this first part is God planned the perfect time and when, <clears throat> and when that time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, but under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see that? All right, back to John 7. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. If that is what Jesus is meaning about his time has not yet come, the fullness of time, what does Jesus mean about his brother's time? Why does Jesus say your time is always here? Well, this is dark, but it's dark. I mean, we're, but Jesus speaks truth to his brothers. He's saying, you guys, you're lost. And you don't belong to God right now. Whoo. In other words, you guys belong to the world and this world's time frame. Now take a step back with me just for a moment. If Jesus is following his brother's advice, what would happen? The plan of God is ruined. Jesus would would be following the world's time and not his father's time. But Jesus says, I'll stick with my father's time. Now here's the whole sermon that we could preach right here, right here, that we all have to say, we'll have to say for another time, but I could, I'm telling you the truth, I could preach it right here. The, The timing that the world offers you, offers us in our life, how it should function when things occur, when the world says, this is when things should happen, it rarely matches God's timing. You've noticed this, haven't you? It's frustrating for sure because we want things to happen when? Now! We don't want to wait. So God's timing so often feels off to us. Many times I've been like, God, uh, can we 
hurry things up just a little bit here. I'm really in need. Do you see what's happening, God? God, you clearly don't see what's happening because if you did, you'd be moving now. And God's simply gone, sticking to my time. And I'm thankful for that once I get past it. Okay, back to Jesus. His brother suggested to go to Jerusalem and go now to take advantage of the giant crowd. That's the, that's the suggestion. I hope you can see this. Their suggestion had to be a real temptation to Jesus in a very real way. This is another temptation that Jesus is facing just like when Satan uh, gave him the temptation in the desert. I mean, it, it's a shortcut to God's plan to go the easy way. Do you see that? This is another temptation that Jesus is facing. There's always this temptation to sin to Jesus, just like we face, to take the easy way out if that's your goal. Rarely is temptation to sin like, hey, uh, do this super evil thing. No, no, no. Temptation for us sounds more like this. Just, Just take the shortcut to get to your goals. You want to get there faster? This is how to do it. It won't cost you near as much. By the way, sometimes it's those that we love the closest to us will tempt us with the greatest plans that are not from God. Plans that sound really reasonable, they will tempt us to not follow what we sense God's leading. Now, they don't realize that. It's not necessarily because those closest to us are trying to tempt us. Like the people that are called to missions in other countries. Let me just say, it's difficult to let your children go. It's easy to tempt them by saying, hey, why don't you stay here? We got a good job for you. You don't have to go spend a year in Africa. But but Jesus points out something very important, yet very dark again, of his brother's. Listen to this next verse in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What, Je- what is Jesus saying here? What's he saying? He's saying, bros, you belong to the world. And therefore, the world loves you, but the world hates me. Now, why does Jesus say the world hates him? Because he testifies to the evilness of how the world lives life. The world doesn't hate his brothers. They're one of the world's members. They've got the carrying card. I'm part of the world. At least at this point, Jesus is saying, you can't even see what's right and wrong. You are blinded to the world It's your world. Now, folks, you've heard me talk about this before. You'll hear me talk about it again uh, until Jesus comes or until I'm dead. The message of the gospel is offensive to the world. But we don't have to be unduly offensive in how we then share the gospel. We always share the gospel with, look, humility and kindness. Like one beggar sharing with another beggar where to find bread. For, for the believers, we don't save ourselves. Jesus chose us. We simply share the gospel message and let the Holy Spirit of God do the work in, in those we share the gospel with. It's his job. Now, we have to offer grace and truth. I love author Warren Wearsby. He has this to say. He says, truth without love is brutality. 
And love without truth is hypocrisy. Somebody say amen on that. Think about the gospel message. It says, you are sinful and the penalty of your sin is the wrath of God. Eternal separation and torment in hell forever. That kind of message doesn't win you a lot of friends and the old popularity contest. But it is truth. That Jesus is the only way God provides to be saved from our sins and brought into then right relationship with God. The message, that message right there, got Jesus crucified. That's how offensive it is. But the gospel also is love, isn't it? And grace. That though we are sinful and lost and enemies of God, that we can't save ourselves, that God loved us enough to send his only son to take our place on the cross, that we should have died on that cross. Romans 5, 8 I quoted a lot, but until I'm dead, I'll quote this. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I get the picture of this. We're going to the cross and Jesus says, no, step aside. Let me get, let me go. But even with this message of the gospel and the truth and the grace, hundreds of thousands have been martyred for that message. Hundreds of thousands. per year we have it easy in the United States we don't think about that people die in China, Africa the Middle East all the time for their faith you need to know that there are some that call themselves Christians that the world loves now how is that possible well if you change the message of the gospel and you take away the part about sin and people's need of a savior and hell, if you change the gospel message into one acceptance of all people, all sin, all the time, well, well, then the world will love you. But that's not the gospel. The world will tell you that what it hates about Christians is that they preach hate when they call sin out in the world. That's a mistake. That's a lie from the enemy. That truth is not hate at all, it's love. Jesus warned his disciples of this in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. To say that we are all sinful and that we are all headed to hell until we are called to life through the power of the Holy Spirit at the command of God the Father when we call that the gospel message. It's love to tell the world that there's only one place to find salvation and that is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Him alone. So let me just ask here, is the world hating us for preaching that gospel? If not... 
maybe you're not preaching the gospel. Maybe we're preaching a softer message than Jesus. Okay, back to John 7 as Jesus answers his brothers. So Jesus tells this to his brothers, and I'm also assuming his sisters were probably standing there too. So Jesus says in verse 8 of John 7, he says, You go up, go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He sends them on their way. Jesus wants to get the timing of his father, his father's plan just right. Remember God's providence here. Jesus is going to carry out the will of his father. That includes timing. Now, some have read this and assumed that Jesus is somehow lying here. I don't get that. Jesus isn't lying. He's sinless. It's as if he's saying, I'm not going to go with you the way you want to go right now. Or... I'm not going yet. Because look, Jesus is replying to his brother's suggestion. What his brothers have suggested is not what Jesus is going to do. That's the bottom line. He's not going to go and present and make a big deal publicly about going, but rather he will go to the feast later. Now look at verse 9. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then He also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jesus is going to the feast, but he's going to go in private. His brothers are suggesting this big public entrance, but Jesus doesn't do that. It might help to understand that back in the day, this feast of booths, or feast of tabernacles, was massive in the lives of every uh, ordinary Jewish uh, person all the way up to the top. They built little shelters or what we call booths out of tree limbs and they would live in those little booths like a little tent for eight days. It was almost a carnival type atmosphere and and there was just lots of excitement around the city. Very few had transportation like camels or horses or carts to travel with. Most people simply walked to wherever they were going and if the trip was long, you, you, you... we're instructed to always go with a group. The bigger the group you travel with, the more safety you'd have. Make sense? Sometimes entire villages would travel together. That was common. And when your group would get near the city, word would travel fast. It's like traffic jam. You're just talking along. They'd go, okay, this group's on its way, this group. So when your group finally arrived, entered the city, people would say things of like the the so-and-so village is arriving. Like the, the tradition nowadays, you know, when the bridesmaids and groomsmen walk into the, the wedding celebration after the wedding and they go, here's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they'll come in. Everyone applauds that same idea as they come into the city. And this was big. So if you were a teacher or a rabbi, which means teacher, When you would get into town, you would have your disciples line up with you to follow in line, very much like a march. And and as the feast, as you entered the feast like this one, you wanted to make this grand entrance. You would have everything beautiful because the goal was to be noticed. And since Jesus has been ministering for three years now publicly, he had lots of people who knew who he was. They were all watching for him. The people knew that Jesus wanted man, uh, was a wanted man by the Jewish leaders. And yet 
They could not arrest him because they feared the people, because the people loved Jesus so much. But Jesus goes to the feast in private with his disciples in Jerusalem. He doesn't want to make a grand entrance. Now here's the question, why is that? Well, two reasons. One, he is following his father's plan and timing. We've talked about that. Second, is that if he goes at the wrong time, there are consequences. There are probably people waiting to take his life. If that happens, not all the scripture or the prophecy would be fulfilled about how the Messiah would be tortured, suffer, and die. Jesus doesn't get there at the beginning of the week-long feast. It's almost like when you arrive to a great big football game after kickoff. You ever done that? You, you get in there and everybody's in the stands. If you come in the stadium and the corridors just are simply empty. Everybody's watching the game. In, in a way, that's what Jesus does. It's like he just slips in after kickoff. Everybody has been watching for him. And he just doesn't show. Everybody goes, hmm. And on top of that, he doesn't travel the regular road south to Jerusalem. Um, he actually goes through Samaria again on his way. I, I think he does that for two main reasons. One, because the average Jewish person at this time would never even consider going through Samaria. You remember that? So he doesn't seek crowds. They would never travel through Samaria, so they may not have, they, they wouldn't accidentally see someone, uh, a regular Jewish wouldn't see a Samaritan. I mean, they want, they would travel out of their way to go around Samaria. But Jesus simply goes through Samaria. Now you remember way back in John 4, Jesus had intentionally gone through Samaria before. We talked about how he ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well and he led many others in the village of Sychar to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Do you remember that? So Jesus fits a little ministry like that uh, in on his way. John just doesn't cover it. Second reason Jesus travels through Samaria this time is he apparently wants to avoid the crowds that would have been on the roadways themselves. No one's going to see him. Word traveled fast. It's hard to get our minds around it. But if there's a constant line of people, you're constantly talking back and forth. So when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he's late to the party. He's on his father's time, his father's plan. He avoids the crowd. He enters. And this frustrates the Jewish leaders to no end. Look at verse 11, John 7. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where is he? Now, the term the Jews are referring to the Jewish leaders, not the Jewish people. Apparently, Jesus arrives somewhere around this time in, in, in verse 11. He's low key. He's with his disciples. But watch what the Jewish people do as Jesus arrives and they begin to see him and notice him. Look at verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray, yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him, uh, openly of him. There's an excitement. Jesus is here. People don't scream. It's Jesus. They're afraid the leaders, they just start to notice him and people are split into two who they think Jesus is and what his goals are. 
There's an audible sound, this muttering sound. And Jesus is now in Judea for his final six months of ministry before his death. This is significant. He travels around the smaller villages and the surrounding area, but he never goes back to the hometown of Galilee after his resur- until after his resurrection. What we're about to see from this point on to the end of John is he, Jesus will begin to teach his disciples and the people even more intensely. Some of the most powerful messages Jesus will teach will come from this point to the end of John. Crowds again will follow Jesus in mass and it will come to a confrontation with the Jewish leaders. And Jesus knows where he's going, what he's facing, but what I want us to end with is this. Jesus sees all this trouble coming his way, yet he holds to the Father's plan and his timing. The question I want us to ask ourselves here at the end of this time is this. Will you hold to following God's plan to your time? Even when it's difficult. Even when you see the end coming. Especially when it's difficult. I find that I can answer that question easily when times are good. I'm like, God, I'm good. Oh yes, God, I'll follow you all the way to the end. I'm like, it's easy. But knowing what we know about Jesus, what he said about to his followers, what we'll face. Are you willing to give your future over to Jesus in such a way that you say, God, my life is yours, and what you mean, my timing is yours, my stuff is yours, yours to say no to the easy way and yes to the difficult way of following Jesus. And not that you think, oh, I, I, not that you think I might die, but to consider that you have already died And the life that you now live is the life of Jesus. In other words, to pray, Jesus, my life is yours. Do with it as you will. Let's consider what the Apostle Paul shares in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me And gave himself for me. Paul considers his life to be already finished. He thinks of himself as a dead man. And the life that he is now living in his earthly body. He says that's your life now Jesus. In other words he says Christ now lives through me. So much so. That when we see people. Uh, And experience, um, Paul says they are experiencing Jesus living through Paul. Does that make sense? When they experience us, they experience Jesus because we're living Jesus. That's what we're called to do, brothers and sisters. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for our time that you have given us here. To just dive into chapter 7. To see Jesus' response to you. Living on your time, living on your plan. Saying no to the shortcuts. God, right now I pray that we would repent of our sins. When we have said yes to what we want and no to what you want, God. We pray that you would show us how to say yes to you. 
as you just continue in an attitude of prayer, if you would open your little cup of juice. The bottom has the cracker. You can peel it open and then be careful on the top. Peel it back. Here's what we ask. It's if you are a baptized believer, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, if you've made that public confession of faith, you don't have to be a member here. You can join with us. And we say if you're not a member, uh, if you're not a believer yet, hold on. This is, time's not for you. Or if you're a child, you've not been baptized yet, this time's not for you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He says, as you eat it, you think of my body. You commemorate my body broken for you in your place that was nailed to the tree. As we get ready to consume this, take that picture in your mind we talked about earlier. As you're facing your cross, that Jesus gently pushes you aside and says, I'll take that cross. His body was broken. This is the body of Christ. Take and eat. On that same night, that last supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup full of wine and he said, this represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As we remember that, for believers, we commemorate. God pours out his grace upon us once again as we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. A blood ransom. This is the blood of Christ. Take and drink. God, we remember what you have done for us. We remember that you have purchased our freedom. That you would have called us to life in your son by the power of your spirit. Jesus, we remember the blood that you have spilled for us, the body that was broken. We look forward to that day when we will drink again the the wine with you in heaven at that great feast. We can't wait for it. But until then, God, help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.